Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you here this morning. And uh, if my calculations are correct, this is the 10th day of Christmas. So your true love should be given, giving to you uh, 10 lords a-leaping. I, I'm not going to demonstrate that. I'm not even sure I want to know what it is. But uh, anyway, we're still in the Christmas season for some. We've got two more days, and then you're all done, I guess. So, hey, one thing you did not receive from Valley Bible Church either by way of email or a letter was a communication that said to you, it's not too late to donate this year. You did not receive one of those because we didn't send one out. Because you are faithful and we want to thank you for your faithfulness, we have ended the year as we do every year above budget and below spending. We're just, God is so gracious. And, uh, you know, our leadership staff is grateful to you, the pastoral staff, the paid staff, um, our wonderful deacons who take care of the budget and set it up and get everything going. And, and um, uh, they thank you. Uh, back when the uh, lockdown began, we weren't sure what was going to happen. We told our staff that we would guarantee salaries for 30 days because people depend upon us. They, they work here. And... Um, uh, we never missed a beat. We never went below our giving projections. Many churches had to lay off staff, and many churches had to cut back on programs. didn't happen here. It has not happened. And so that is because of you. We, we just thank you that you have chosen, as the right thing is, is that uh, the first place that you give is to your church family. I understand you have other ministries who vie for your attention in, in December and last you know, minute giving, and that's okay to take part in that, but we are grateful to you, and thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity, and um, I, yeah, I'm gushing because we love you guys, and I love you all, so thank you for that. All right. This morning, uh, we're in John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57, But our scripture reading is going to be from the Psalms, Psalm 2, the second Psalm, because it gives us a good background of what is happening uh, in John chapter 11. And so, because this happens all the time, what is described in in, in Psalm 2, people plot against God, but it's folly, Uh, it fails, it is futile. And there are reasons, and it is that God is sovereign and is the king of the universe. So Psalm 2, would you please stand as we read the second psalm, the word of God. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord And against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, 
You shall shatter them with like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those, all who take refuge in him. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are grateful to you, O God, for being king of the universe, for sending your son who will rule the nations. He is coming back. We thank you for his sovereign rule yesterday, today, and forever. And we humbly bow before you as we seek your attention to us as we look into your word. Would you feed us? Would you enlighten us? Enlighten us? Would you empower us to obey your word and to live for you? We, we do so, we ask so, humbly in the name of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We should never be surprised at the evil that we see in this world. And yet we are. What? There was an explosion. What? There was a robbery. What? There was a hijacking. What? There was whatever it is. You fill in the blanks. And we're always surprised. That doesn't, I'm not saying we should get used to it and, and, and ever want that kind of thing, but we should not ever be surprised at the evil that exists in this world. When you look at the life of Christ in in all of the Gospels, he was always being confronted with evil. And so he was always confronting evil itself with his teaching, with his person, with who he was. But if you look at the evil that he confronted and that confronted him, it is not the kind of evil that we think of in this world. Because when we think of evil in this world that Jesus probably came to confront, it wasn't terrorists. It wasn't racists, it wasn't dictators and tyrants, it wasn't human traffickers, it wasn't prostitution rings, it wasn't drug lords or big big business taking advantage of people, it wasn't climate change, it wasn't international tensions between two countries wanting to go to war. You don't see that in the life of Christ, do you? You might see hints of that in some of the evil that confronts him, But in essence, where was the evil that did confront evil and that he confronted? Where was it? It It's in the heart of man. It's in the heart of human beings. And in what would probably, one would think, the most unlikely of places, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, those who lead lead that great Hebrew faith, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, If you would think that there would be righteousness, if you would think that there would be holiness, if you would think that there would be faith, it would be in these people, and yet it was not. The greatest evil that he faced was in the religious leaders of Israel. It's amazing to think about that, but it's important for us to remember it as well. And we see this in the passage as we go through it. We saw it in Psalm 2. Mankind raises up his fist against God and wants to do his own will. And God goes, you poor kids, you have no idea 
what you're in for. The background of our passage, of course, is the last Sunday of Advent, a couple of weeks ago, where uh, Lazarus was wa- raised from the dead. And the, the greatest of all Jesus' miracles, in fact, in, if you remember that in the, the book of John, in John's gospel, there are seven signs that he records, seven miracles. And the raising of Lazarus is the climactic miracle. It is the greatest of all, a man dead in the tomb for four days. Uh, how can you top that? It is the greatest, um, and it is also the one that reveals his identity, probably the most clearest, that he is deity, he is indeed God, because who can say, Lazarus, come forth, a man who's dead? Who can say that but God? No one can say that. Demonstrating that he has power in his very word over life and death. Also de- demonstrates that he is indeed the Messiah, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Messiah has come, that he is the Son of God. It foreshadows his own resurrection because he will be crucified, but he will rise from the dead. But it also foreshadows our resurrection. And so the raising of Lazarus, the seventh miracle, is the greatest of all. And it also fits so very, very nicely with the very purpose of the book. It's important for us to come back to it time and time again. John chapter 20, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He performed many other miracles, but these, these seven that are recorded by John, why were they written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that is exactly what is happening after the raising of Lazarus, Some are beginning to believe in the name of Jesus that he is indeed the Son of God. And the religious leaders say, we can't have that. That's not right. We don't want any of that going on around here. So looking ahead in this passage this morning, we're going to see three things. Man's plot to kill Jesus. The nations are devising a vain thing. Folly. God's plan to save sinners how he turns it around in such incredible irony and God's providence in the Passover. Man's plot to kill Jesus, God's plan to save sinners, and lastly, God's providence in the Passover. So man's plot to kill Jesus, let's jump right in there in verses 47 through 50 and verse 53. Our text begins here, and this is right after, remember, the, the Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and some people were believing, and some people went to the religious leaders and they said, guess what he did? He raised someone from the dead. They tattled on him. Therefore, since they heard this, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. The word council is literally the word Sanhedrin. There were these 70 that are part of the, the, the council. Chief priests are the Sadducees. The Pharisees, of course, are the opposite party. You have the, a two-party system, the loyal opposition to one another, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And basically, they are frustrated at the success of Jesus. And they're saying to one another, what are we doing here? What are we accomplishing? What are we going to do? This man is performing many signs, that is, miracles. What are we going to do? We're caught. If we let him go on like this, 
if we don't put a stop to this. All men will believe in him. This hyperbolic. It's not everybody's going to believe. But for them, they're thinking everybody's going to flock to him. Everybody's going to believe, believe that he's the Messiah. And then what's going to happen? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What they see happening is that if people follow after Jesus and they declare and believe that he is indeed the Messiah then there's going to see that there's unrest and there's tension and there's instability in the nation of Israel in which there would be. And so the Romans would intercede and they would take away the power of the council, take away our place, which means the temple and Jerusalem, the place where we reign over the nation of Israel, and they'll take away the nation itself. Actually, that's going to happen. In AD 66 through 70, they're going to continue, the religious leaders are going to continue uh, trying to uh, politicize events and try to, uh, to, to, to rebel in a little bit against the Roman Empire, but yet keep things cozy. And what happens is the Romans have enough, they come in and they destroy Jerusalem itself and tear down the temple. That's going to happen. They're actually going to lose it all. But right now, they're wondering, well, what are we doing? Because what we're doing isn't working. We've confronted him publicly. We've tried to humiliate him. We've tried to arrest him at least three different times. We want to get rid of him, but they didn't have a cohesive plan. They didn't really have everybody on board. They excommunicated the man that was born blind that Jesus healed. Um, that was a noteworthy miracle, and he humiliated them in the temple, that man did. So they kicked him out. Nothing has worked. They see this as a problem. What do they see as a problem? He's performing many signs. They see this as a problem. That Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they see as a problem. You see, that's the problem. They see this good thing as a problem. And whenever you see something good as a problem, something is wrong with your heart. That's evil. And this is the evil that we see in the, the council. They see this good thing that has happened as a problem. Why? Because it entrenches upon their territory and their power. If we let him go on like this, they're going to believe and the Romans will come and take away our place. They're going to take away our city. They're going to take away our control, our rule. They readily admit, admit the facts. He's performing many signs. Gotcha. They're not denying that he's performing miracles. They're just saying that we don't, we don't care. We want to get rid of the guy. Their, their question is, what are we doing? What are we going to do? We're not getting anywhere. It's time for us to act, and we need, we need a plan. So verse 48, when they say, um, if we let him go on like this, the kicker is that the majority of the Jews are going to believe in him and they're going to miss everything unless we do something about this. Never mind that he might be the Messiah. That's immaterial. That's irrelevant, right? We might lose our power. If the people follow Jesus and not them, the Roman government is going to say, this place is unstable, we need to jump in here and take care of it, and that that's exactly what will eventually happen. 
because the Jewish leaders are afraid of losing the sweet deal that they've got. It's all about their power. A couple of lessons right off the bat. Those who have made up their minds to not believe in Jesus will not be convinced by evidence or reason. People have made up their mind that they're not going to believe in Jesus. You can't reason them into the kingdom of God. You can't show them enough evidence. Yeah, it's good to talk to people, but you have to remember that they choose to disbelieve. And those who choose to disbelieve, why do they do that? They do so for selfish purposes. And what is the selfish purpose that people choose over believing in Jesus? It is sin. It is their sin. I don't want to give up my sin. I don't want to give up my power, my control over others. I don't want to give up what I'm doing. I don't want to repent. I've got a sweet deal. I'm getting away with it. I don't need no Jesus, no Messiah. Those who choose to disbelieve do so for the selfish purpose of sin. But you see, the gospel is that we must repent of our sin. We are going downward, this, down this road, broad as the path of destruction. When God gets a hold of our eyes, he calls us not just to believe, but to repent and to believe, to turn around the other direction and to say to God, you are right about sin and I am wrong. You are right about the direction. I am wrong. You are right about my life. I am rebellious. I have been wrong. I repent and I turn to you to trust in you. Second lesson is this. The faith is indeed a matter of the will. I understand Martin Luther, the bondage of the will. But when it comes down to it, when we are faced with the choice of salvation, when we are faced with the evidence, when we are faced with the gospel message itself, we are held culpable for our decision at that moment. One must look at the evidence, but in the end, faith is a a decision to entrust ourselves, to to turn from our sin and to entrust ourselves to Jesus for forgiveness, to entrust ourselves to Jesus for life itself, to entrust ourselves for a new direction and purpose and hope, to entrust ourselves to the cross of Christ, to entrust ourselves to eternity beyond this world. And it is a matter of the will. We must entrust ourselves, and that is what faith is doing. It is Faith is we have to believe the gospel, we have to understand its truth, but we have to entrust ourselves to the Savior. So, so far, the council, they're willing to overlook the, the miracles of Jesus. They're willing to overlook his teaching. They're willing to overlook the signs of Jesus in order to retain their power. Um, they don't really care about what he did for Lazarus and his family. Uh, they could not care less the good things that he's done. And they want to overlook those things. But the question is, to what length will they go to retain their power? How far will they go to retain their power? We find out in the person of Caiaphas. Verse 49, but one of them, 
Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the high priest, so he was the president of the council over the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all the Sanhedrin together. When it says he was high priest that year, it doesn't mean that they appointed a different high priest every year. In fact, he was a high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, 18-year-long rule Caiaphas had. So when it says Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, we're going to see it later on in this passage, we're going to see it later on in the book, what it's saying is Caiaphas was high priest in that fateful time that the nation rejected its own Messiah. It was under his watch, in other words, that this happened. He was the one, was under his watch, he was the leader of the leaders when they chose to reject their own Messiah. The words that come from him are dripping with cynicism, with um, anger. The words that come from his mouth are contempt, they are proud, they are cold, and they are calculating. You thought those guys were bad? This guy says, let me show you what, the, what we're dealing with here. So you don't know anything. You guys know what you're talking about. And he scolds them for not getting with the program. Let's, stop, let's not stop beating around the bush. This is what we need to do. You, don't, you need to take into account what is best for you, what is expedient for you, what is to your advantage, what is in your best interest. Oh, Pharisees and Sadducees, that's what you need to take into account. Not what he's done for the people, not the people might believe. But this is what is to your advantage, that this man die. We need a sacrificial lamb. We need to sacrifice him for our purposes. We need to sacrifice him, yeah, for the nation, he says, It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Not that, and and they're not, this is not patriotism. What are they putting first? Our expedience, our purposes, our power. If the nation is saved from perishing, that's good for us, in other words. But if the nation goes away, we lose it all. So what do we do? We need a scapegoat. We need someone innocent. We need someone who will be a sacrificial lamb to sacrifice to the Romans, if as it were, to sacrifice to the people, as it were, so that we can continue on our merry, merry way. This is where the plot comes out. Yeah, Caiaphas was a Sadducee. The chief priest was always a Sadducee. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Therefore, the report that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead was particularly offensive to them. We don't believe that stuff. Yeah, we heard that it happened, but no, 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 we don't believe that stuff. So wait, 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 we've got to stop this. This is a case of my enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is, uh, the, these are two people coming together because the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along. It was like oil and water. They were opposition parties But they come together in this one instance because they realize that their power is collective. And if they do not get rid of Jesus, they lose the power. The nation is gone. 
The resurrection, though, is a key concept in the scriptures, isn't it? First Corinthians 15, if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then guess what? We're still in our sins, every one of us. Paul, facing the same council, probably some different people, but later on, um, in Jerusalem, he, he realizes that there are Pharisees and Sadducees, and he uses that to his, his advantage, and he says, I am on trial today for the resurrection of the dead. And poof, you know, there, there's this... There's this division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So Paul used it to his his advantage. But in this case, before the death of Christ, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are united on this thing. That's why in verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. It's murder. It's evil. The religious leaders of the the Hebrew faith, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who gave the faith to Abraham, passed down to Isaac and Jacob, then through Joseph and, and the nation of Israel and the prophets throughout all history, come down to the one who is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, we want it, we want him dead. This is evil. It's the evil of mankind. So, a couple of lessons. Never underestimate depravity. If it could happen in, in Israel, in these people, it can happen anywhere. Never underestimate depravity in yourself, in others, or in the world. Depravity means this. You are born in sin. You are a sinner. You are actually dead in your sin. There is hope that we are born again and we are forgiven through Christ Yes, but even when we are born again, we continue to struggle against sin. How many of you who are in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s no longer struggle with sin? You, all, you got it down? You got this thing wired? Do you? No. It doesn't happen. I don't want to say for those of you who are younger, there's no hope, but we have not struggled to the point of shedding blood against our sin It will be a lifelong struggle. He's given us the tools. He's given us the new nature. He's given us the word of God, the Holy Spirit who lives in in us, the fellowship of the saints. We have all that we need to say no to sin. We've been crucified with Christ. But there will always be this downward pull, this struggle in each and every one of us as long as we will live. And so, again, I I don't mean for you to... um, to, to be negative and, and think that there is no hope. There is hope. I'm just calling you to be realistic about your own heart and the heart of others and the heart of our government and the heart of people that are out there. Do you know that the, uh, the founders of the United States of America, they took into account depravity when they, threw, when they wrote the Constitution? James Madison, who wrote uh, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, said this, Depravity in mankind requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust. In other words, we have to distrust the government at some level because why? People are in charge. He goes on to say, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. 
If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. He said that's the problem. We have depraved people governing whom? Depraved people. What do you get? <laughs> we get distrust. We get problems. And like the San, Sanhedrin, uh, some people today will do anything to gain power and they'll do anything to hold on to power, right? Nothing has changed with depravity in leaders and government leaders. This doesn't mean we should always be looking at the bad in others. I'm not saying that. Or that we're always looking at the bad in government. Love believes all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. We should be people who are winsome and joyful and hopeful. It just means we are to be realistic. We should never be pie in the sky. Because we have the answer. We stand in the gospel. The gospel is the answer to all of this. And one day we will see this and Christ will come back. But in the meantime, it is our responsibility to proclaim the good news. But hear this as well. We oftentimes misplace the battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We often place our mistrust and our anger toward people that disagree with us and they to us. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and we should never, ever have personal animosity toward others. It's never sanctioned in the Scriptures that we have personal animosity toward our enemies or toward our leaders or toward those who disagree with us. We are to love them, even if they use us and despitefully use us and declare us to be evil ourselves. So be careful of where we place our, our hope. Second lesson is this. Don't let self-preservation keep you from doing what you know to be right. It tempts all of us. Just as they were tempted to hang on to power, we see miracles, good is being done, this family has been helped, this man is alive, surely that must be a good thing, but then I've got my power, I've got my own little rice bowl here, I've got this stuff that I want to take care of. And we are tempted to lie, we are tempted to cheat, we are tempted to steal in order to protect our own self-interest, our own money, our own prestige, our own power, whatever it may be, all of us are tempted at some time to preserve our self-interest. That's what the flesh is, doing what is best for old number one. That's me. What's even worse is sometimes, like they, we might see others as expendable for our purposes. Yeah, I know he's a nice guy, but I need to raise worse than him. I know he's got seniority, but, um, you know, if I fill out my report a different way, things will happen to me that are better because I've got a family too. There are many ways that we can look at, at people as 
expendable to achieve our purposes and step on people just as they saw Jesus. Okay, he's a good guy. But come on, the ends justify the means. We've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to sacrifice him. So that's man's plan to kill Jesus. We see bad men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see a worse man, Caiaphas. But now we see an unbelievably gracious God. We see God's plan to save sinners in spite of this, in spite of us, in spite of all that was happening in Israel. God's plan to save sinners. Now, this is John's interjection here. This is John's commentary on what is happening, and it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, John says this, now speaking of Caiaphas, he didn't say this on his own initiative that Jesus was going to die for the nation. But being high priest that year, there it is, he said it again, it's on his watch, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now, when he prophesied, it's not like um, he willfully, under the inspiration and control of the Holy Spirit, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, was declaring the gospel that Jesus was going to die for the nation. That's not what he meant. This was more a prophecy a la Balaam's donkey. God is speaking through him. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he is about. His purpose is to kill Jesus. But there's a turn of events, as it were. Jesus turns it on its head. God turns it on its head Really, yeah, he's speaking a prophecy because God is sovereign in all of this. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. It's pure irony. Um, John is a master of irony in, um, in the gospel of John. Caiaphas doesn't know it, but he's proclaiming the gospel. Unwittingly, he is saying exactly what God has sovereignly promised and planned to happen. What he means is we're going to kill this guy. What God means is, yeah, you're going to kill him. He's going to be the sacrifice for sins. He is going to release the nation, those who will believe, that Jesus would indeed die on behalf of the the people and that the nation not perish. He was not giving a prediction on his own again. He was not cooperating with God. He was railing against God. And irony is what is happening. What he meant is the exact opposite of what will happen. Uh, We see this in the story of Joseph, don't we? Remember the story of Joseph? Um, Joseph's brothers, um, they hate their brother. Why? They're jealous. They resent him. So they seek to kill him. They throw him in a pit. But God's plan was that he be raised from the pit in which he was thrown in order to save the the nation of Israel. It is a turn of events. It is irony. And that is exactly what is happening with John and Caiaphas. Again, the prophecy of the order of Balaam's donkey. Verse 52. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather to together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
He is speaking prophetically, but he doesn't understand that this isn't just about the nation of Israel, but God is going to bring all of his children together into one. He's going to form one new entity, one new man, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the church, all who will come to believe in Christ. These words are indeed prophetic because this is exactly what Jesus is going to do, dying to save the nation and Gentiles. Do you think that Caiaphas believed for a minute that them putting Jesus to death was going to bring Gentiles into the nation? No. The exact opposite. We want to keep them fenced out. But how we see this in the book of John, John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He's going to gather into one all the children of God, all who believe in the name of Christ, who are born not into Israel, not sons of Abraham, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 10, 16. Not too long ago we saw this. I have other sheep, Jesus said, which are not of this fold. Speaking of the Gentiles, I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus gathering Jew and Gentile into one new thing. Remember what John, what Jesus said back in John chapter six. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is where we see predestination and the responsibility of people to believe coming together. Before the foundation of the world, God gave to Jesus those whom he would raise from the dead, but playing out in time, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. I cannot explain the mystery, but it is so. And that's why Jesus came. And Caiaphas doesn't even know what he's talking about. But he's speaking the truth in, a, in, a, in God's sovereignty. A couple of lessons. What man means for evil, God means for good. Happened in the life of Joseph. It happened in the life of Jesus. It happens in our life, too, because we can trust in Romans 8. But God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose to be his children. Everything. Whatever happened in 2020, whatever happens in 2021, whatever happened five years ago, whatever is going to happen in the future, God is on the throne always. Ladies and gentlemen, and he causes all things to work together for good. He has a purpose. He has a sovereign purpose in all of this. Second lesson, God's plans cannot and will not be thwarted. Ever, not ever. Man thinks he's got the upper hand. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people devise vain things? Why do the Pharisees and the Sadducees think that they can do these things against the Almighty God? Foolish. It is foolish to kick against the goads. It is foolish for us as believers to think that we can go our own way 
rather than submitting ourselves to the plan and the sovereignty and the will of God. And we should never fear that evil will win, ever, because it won't. Don't despair. Of all that is happening in the world, evil will never win. There might be ups and downs and battles that are won and lost, but God will never let it happen. The third lesson is this. God's will be done, and he often works through unlikely people to accomplish it. In fact, I should probably say he always works through unlikely people to accomplish his will. He will always, his will will be done. He uses unlikely people. Balaam, Balaam's donkey, Nebuchadnezzar, Caiaphas, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, you, me. God's will be done. And he will use whomever he will, however he will, for good, for his glory, rejoice. We can trust in God and rest well in 2021. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can pray that throughout the year, knowing that it will happen. For he is sovereign. And he's playing it out in the, one of the darkest moments in the life and story of Jesus Christ. So God's plan for sinners goes against man's plan for evil. And finally, we see in verses 54 through 57, God's providence in the Passover. Things are starting to unfold now in the story. Things are going to move very, very quickly going into chapter 12, and we're going to, go, we're going to soon be in the last, the, the last week of Jesus' life. Got chapters 20 through 21, we've been through 11 chapters, 10 more chapters in John, mostly devoted to one week in his life and mostly devoted to just a couple of days. That's what's ahead. But this is what God is working out providentially. It's all working according to plan. He has sent his son to die for us, and this is how it will happen. First of all, the Lord knows his hour has not yet come. Jesus knows that. Verse 54, therefore, because they were seeking to kill him, you know what? He knew it. Jesus had friends in the Sanhedrin, and they came to him and said, you need to lay low. You need to stay of uh, public sight because they're going to kill you. I'm not joking this time. It's not just Jesus. Yeah, I know. But he was not in for a confrontation. He knew the timing of his father when his hour of suffering would come. Therefore, he no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there into the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, about 12 miles north, 12 to 15 miles north of uh, Bethany, and there he stayed with his disciples, fellowshipping, remaining with them, preparing, stealing himself for what was to come. We also see the pilgrims prepare for their part in this play. Verses 55 and 56, now the Passover of the Jews was near. Okay, here, we, we got it. Three Passovers in the life of Christ. This is the final one. He will be the Passover lamb. 
It was near. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country, <clears throat> excuse me, before the Passover to purify themselves. Before the Passover itself, if you had been uh, declared unclean for some reason, say, for instance, you touched a dead body. Interesting that Jesus didn't need to purify himself around Lazarus because Lazarus was not dead. But you would need to go into the temple and you would need to offer sacrifice for purification so that you could participate in the Passover. So this is the pre-Passover rush. And they were seeking for Jesus. Why? Did they want to believe in him? No, because he'd been doing miracles. They were seeking the miracle worker. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Is he going to come to the Passover or not? And the expected answer is, we don't think he's coming. These pilgrims arrive early, and they're just rehearsing their part for what's going to unfold because they are fickle. In, in a few days, in a, in, a, in a few short days, they're going to turn on this man. Just like today, they're all about politics. They're all about the controversy. I can't wait to see if he comes because it's going to be great to see him and the, 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 the Pharisees tingling with one another again. People are like that, right? They love a good fight. They love a good controversy. And whatever way it goes, we'll go with the power. That's where these people are. They're ready to play their part. And the plotters have prepared the trap. Verse 57, the reason they didn't think he was coming was this. Chief priests and the Pharisees have given or, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. For what purpose? To kill him. You see, they, they wanted to arrest him so they could have a fair trial, right? No, they had already declared him guilty. They wanted to arrest him, to kill him. And they had the word out on the street, hey, you heard? You see Jesus, let us know where he's at. Because we're done with him. So we return to the original question of the chief priests and the Pharisees in conclusion here. Their question was, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? With Jesus, I, I put that question to you. What are you doing with Jesus? Are you opposing him? Sheer folly. You will not win that battle. I urge you to submit. I urge you, because he loves you and he has your best interests at heart, you will not win in that selfish struggle trying to hold on to your own sin. It will not end well for you. But there's hope. And that's the good news. There were those who opposed him. Some were bad, some were worse. Chief priests, Pharisees, Caiaphas. Uh. But then you have the people that are just neglecting him, the people going up. They're overlooking him. They're not paying attention to him. In other words, they're neutral. They're not taking him seriously. Let's just go. Whatever way it goes, we'll go with. If he wins out, yeah, we'll go that way. You can't stay on the fence with Jesus Christ. You've got to get off the fence. I urge you to get off the fence. Jesus would say elsewhere, he who is not for me is what? Against me. There is no middle ground. Either we're for him or we're not. 
even the devout can miss Jesus when he is right in front of your face, as these people did. Finally, of course, there is believing in him. Believe in him. Entrust yourself to him. Turn from your selflessness, selfishness rather, turn to selflessness as he demonstrated that to us. Here is the gospel, and I'm going to ask the, uh, the, the worship team to come up, and I want you to prepare your elements for the Lord's table. We see it in the passage. We'll partake of the bread and the cup separately, but I want you to prepare them. Look at the gospel proclaimed in this passage. Jesus would die for the nation and all his children. His death was for others. It was not for himself. Either we die or Jesus dies. But if he lives, you live. It is his life instead of yours. That is the substitutionary atonement. We are sinners. He was not. We are guilty. He was innocent. He is holy, we are sinful, we are dead, he was alive, and the great exchange is he dies in our place. Good news. Believe, embrace, and that's what communion is all about. Recognizing that his, he came in the flesh and he gave his life for us. He was incarnate. He shed his blood. We're going to, as you hold the the, the elements, I want you to partake of them in a worthy manner because the Apostle Paul said this. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are a believer in Jesus, I invite you to this place of grace, this family meal, to partake of it in remembrance, joyfully of what he's done for us, his His body was broken. His blood was shed. If you're on the fence, if you don't understand it, if you are not a Christian yet, just hold on to it. Please. Talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to explain more to you. But partake in a worthy manner, which means if there is something in your heart that is dark, if depravity has won out this last year or this last week or this day, Please confess that to the Lord and partake in a worthy manner. We're going to sing a song we've not sung before called How Low Was Our Redeemer Brought. He was brought low in the incarnation and becoming a baby. He was brought low in bearing our grief and our sin and identifying with our shame. And he was brought low in leaving his throne that we might reign with him. So would you consider these truths as we sing and then we will partake together.